Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. This episode features one of the three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it is broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival. The 8th annual New York City premiere will be October 2023, along with the 5th annual New York Cat Film Festival before traveling the country, supporting local animal welfare groups. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at TracyHotchnerPets.com. I would not be able to bring you this show without the generous support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. This show would not be possible without the longtime support from Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food. Other pet food companies may have copied them over time, but Waruva remains privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards, not investors who focus on profits. What a wonderful new book I have discovered, and now you will discover it's called The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. It's written by Jonathan B. Losos. He also wrote Improbable Destinies, Fate, Chance, and the Future of Evolution. And to me, it feels, Jonathan, as though it's our happy fate and chance that you evolved from being a lizard scientist to being a man with an enormous brain who looks at cats from way back when to now. And it, it just, it, it's the book... The Cat's Meow almost feels like an exploration of the inside of your brain and the amazing way that you would that you connect ideas and you connect people to ideas. And cats are simply the venue that, that allows us to take this voyage with you. I have a kind of a, a cheeky question. You were originally at Harvard, which I didn't know, but at one point you said that you had snuck in some... A biological diversity teaching to 12 brilliant Harvard students by telling them you were going to do a class about cats. And I thought, wait a minute, you're an evolutionary biologist at Washington University in St. Louis and have direct, the founder of the Living Earth Collaborative, a unique biodiversity center and partnership between Washington U, the St. Louis Zoo, and the Missouri Botanical Garden. So we're definitely going to talk about the cat's meow, but can you tell a little bit about that leap from Harvard where you also uh, had the importance of, of having been a curator at the university's Museum of Comparative Zoology? 
why did you go to St. Louis? It's sort of none of my business, but if Harvard is kind of like the, the cherry on everybody's Sunday, there must be a reason that you're in St. Louis instead of Cambridge. Well, sure. I'd be happy to uh, to answer that. And thank you for all the very kind words that you just said. Uh, it's very uh, made my head swell, and uh, I really appreciate Good. it. Good. More room for uh, your big brain is the way I look at it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> uh, so I was at Harvard for 12 years as a, as a biologist, a zoologist, and, um, and as you said, curator of the Natural History Museum, curator in herpetology. And it's a, a fabulous place for many reasons, a great students, great opportunities to do research, and so on. Um, but one thing I was looking to do was I was at that point in my career where I wanted to, to do things that are, went beyond my own personal research, to do things for the greater good. And, of oh, course, nice. I've, always been, I've always been concerned about you know, the fate of nature and all the, all the stuff that's going on to the world's uh, biological diversity. And so I had this opportunity to move to St. Louis to start this new biodiversity center that is a partnership between Washington University, the Missouri Botanical Garden, and the St. Louis Zoo. And the reason, the rationale behind that is that um, that WashU has always been a very strong in the study of, of, of biodiversity. And then the Missouri Botanical Garden is one of the world's great centers of botanical scholarship. It's no generally kidding. It, it, it's spectacular. Now, if you go visit, you should visit. Uh, the grounds are just gorgeous. Uh, but its its reputation is not just for the beautiful plant exhibits, but all the research that they do and all the conservation work behind the scenes, where they're, they're working around the world. They have 50 Ph.D. scientists and, and so on. It's, it's just a great air place. Wow. And then the, the, the St. Louis Zoo is also one of the great zoos of the world with a really strong conservation program. And so the idea was we have these three great institutions, all, all with strength in understanding and conserving uh, the world's biological diversity, and they're all within a couple of miles of each other. Wouldn't it be great if we joined forces and you know, made the whole greater than the sum of the parts? And that was the idea, to do something that really is pretty unique that, uh, that St. Louis has the opportunity to do. And so it, w- it was certainly tough to, to leave Harvard, which was great in many ways, but it was just the sort of opportunity I was looking for. And that's so that's very what brought exciting. Me, that's a really here. exciting answer. I knew it had to be something about the melding of these three institutions. I had no idea of the importance of the work being done there, but they obviously knew of your importance. Now, you've won just a few awards, like National Academy of Sciences Society for the Study of Evolution and the American Society of Naturalists. Can I ask also, are, I mean, when you the book is so accessible and fun and like just having a great dinner companion full of wonderful stories and anecdotes, but there must be a PhD in your life. I mean, how could you have done all this? And yet you never mention that anywhere in the book. Does it say Dr. Losos or Ph.D., or did you somehow leapfrog? Uh, no, you are correct. I, I do have a, a Ph.D. in zoology. I got it at the University of California, Berkeley, way back when. Um, and can I give you the short story? On yes, how please, because I, from, I, uh, I think it's important for people to understand how somebody becomes such a wonderful naturalist. And, and those of you that love cats will definitely want to read The Cat's Meow. But anybody interested in how scientists become scientists and who they are and what makes them tick, I mean, that's the beauty of the book. So, yes, please, tell the story. All right. It starts when I was five years old, and we got a 
cat from a shelter uh, for my dad for his birthday because my dad was always a big cat enthusiast. And so we got this cat, and uh, ever since I've been wild about cats. I mean, <laughs> cats are the greatest thing ever. So I, I've always loved cats. Um, but at the same time, at age five, I was one of those little kids who was wild about dinosaurs also. And so I was the kid in nursery school who had a basket of plastic dinosaurs and could tell you, pronounce their names and tell you all about them and so on. And as I grew up, I transferred my interest from, from dinosaurs to living reptiles, uh, lizards in particular, and, and crocodiles. Um, and so I, I went first to college, uh, and well, I went to college thinking, well, I'll study biology and see if I like it. And the more I learned, the more fascinated I became. And then I went to, uh, to graduate school to get my PhD, and, and I was studying lizards. And uh, it, it never occurred to me that I might study cats um, for two reasons. One is, um, you know, cats are famously secretive. If you've right. ever tried to follow a cat outside, the cat quickly gives you the shake, you know, <laughs> that, that you just can't do it. And so I wanted to go out in nature and study animals and how they interacted with their environment. And so to do that, you need, well, it helps to be able to see them. And so lizards seem to be the great, a great organism for that. And in fact, so that's, that's what I did. I spent my career, I studied a particular type of lizard. Anyone who's been to Florida or the southeastern U.S. or Caribbean islands has seen these lizards. They're called anoles. Um, and it turns out that there are, uh, these are lizards that have a little flap of skin under their throat. And so okay. they will push up and down and stick their, it's called a dewlap out. And they're very visible, certainly in Florida and in many other places. But the interesting thing about them is there's 400 species of them. Wow. And so they're a great evolution success story. And so I've spent my career with working with many wonderful colleagues, uh, trying to understand why this group has been so successful evolutionarily, and then how particular species have adapted to the particular place in the environment in which they live. Um, so, so that's you know, what I've spent my career doing. And at the same time, as I said, it never occurred to me to study cats, not only because um, you know, they're hard to follow and get to study in nature, but also because I was under the impression that there really wasn't much interesting cat research going on. And it just didn't seem the thing to do. Um, and then about 10 years ago, I discovered that I was wrong. Uh, <laughs> I, I learned that there is actually a lot of people, there are a lot of people studying cats. And by cats, I mean the domestic cat, right. both feral cats and pet cats, not lions and tigers and ocelots, but the domestic cat. And I, I learned I was wrong about, um, that there is a lot of research out there. And that got me interested. And then I had what I humbly submit was a great idea. And this is what you mentioned. I decided to teach a, cat, a class for first-year students called The Science of Cats. And the idea is that I would, you know, lure the students in yeah. on cats and then teach them how we study nature yes. just using cats as the vehicle. Uh, because it turns out people were studying cats in all the same ways that I study lions, that I study lizards, and other people study lions and elephants right. and so on. All the same techniques, all the same approaches. And so the idea was teach the students about how we study nature using cats as the way of doing that. And so I, I taught that course. It was incredible fun. I think it went over very well with the students. And that, in turn, uh, I got the idea, well, why not write a book about it and try to, to take this approach and bring it to the general public? And so, um, so this book, I mean, getting back to what you were saying, I, I spent my career studying how lizards evolve, but the same issues are uh, apparent with cats. And so I've, I've been, and the book talks about how we know where cats came from, 
why they do what they do today and maybe what the future holds for them. It doesn't explain why you don't put PhD next to your name. Well, you know, I don't know. I, <laughs> I yeah, just I, love you for it because you're so accomplished. I mean, multiply accomplished, obviously sought out by these institutions to come and move to St. Louis. My father, parenthetically, put himself through school after the Depression at Washington U and through the law school and has not, had nothing but admiration for it in all 102 years that he lived. So I was tickled to see you were there, but I didn't realize it was so impressive and important in this area, but you're so impressive and important in your area of scholarship, of of biology, of studying how the world works out there. And I think it's, it's just, in a way, just so charming that you're like, yeah, I don't need to mention the PhD. We don't have to call me Dr. Losos. Just come and sit by my side and we'll we'll look at nature together. You you have a early on in the book, The Paradox of the Modern Cat, which is the first chapter, which really explains who you are and why you're interested in cats. And you really bring us along. And you have a footnote. Now, a lot of us avoid footnotes thinking, oh, God, it's going to tell me something dry and, and ancient and kind of brittle and boring. Yours are the opposite. So this was about whether cats would eat their human if they were to die in an apartment. So I'm already thinking this guy is so funny and cool at the way he looks at things. And then you have... I've just got to read this because it, it then made me read through the book just the footnotes for the heck of it. A <laughs> footnote on footnotes. My head is full of all kinds of fascinating information and insights on cats. I have relegated points that are tangential or provide extra details to the footnotes. You're free to ignore them, but beware. You're going to miss some great stuff. That, to me, Jonathan, just encapsulates this book. It's so full of great stuff and no one should miss it. And it's a lot of it's about scientists and academia and how things get studied. And even when people get things wrong, how that gets uh, sort of multiplied. Speak to that for a minute. The fact that, yes, you did find there was research on cats, but the meow in particular had interested you only to discover that a great deal of the, I guess you would call it so-called scholarship around the way cats vocalize, was based on one extremely poor study. And I, in being aware of the dog and cat and other species, the research being done, the minds thinking about it, discovered that it, one idea can be taken as gospel, like something printed in the New York Times is now a fact or the truth because they are good fact checkers in theory, and then it just gets repeated. So how much did you find that when you were learning and exploring, that there'd be a, an idea that was mediocre or mediocrely ex, uh, sort of explored, and everybody said, okay, fine, that's, that's the way it is, I guess. I mean, you, you kind of poke holes in all sorts of, of poorly identified ideas, don't you? Uh, well, I, I, I do. Good. I do. I mean, there's certainly a lot of, of good research out there as well. Of course. And, um, let, let, let me answer a, a bunch of different things. And first, uh, on a tangent, one of the most fun things about writing this book was talking to the scientists who've done the research and just getting the story of how did you become a, a cat yes. scientist and yes. how did this project work? Uh, and people were so generous in spending time in repeated emails and phone calls to, to tell me their stories. 
and, and the stories are fascinating. Many people who study cats never intended to do so initially. They just kind of ended up there through a series of, of events. And so uh, it's just so much fun meeting all these people, and, and people have been so kind to, to tell me all about their work. So that was, that was lots of fun. Um, so the, there, there's a paradox of, uh, I just told you a moment ago, that there's all this research on cats out there. But at the same time, there's a tremendous amount of information that we don't know. Right. And this is actually true about nature. It's true of my lizards. They've been studied for 50 years. We know a ton about them, but there's many basic facts we don't know. And the, and the same is true with cats. And so the particular example you're talking about is the scientific literature says that cats do not meow to each other very much. They don't meow. The, the meow is not a way of communicating from one cat to the other. And uh, this, is, this is repeated in the scientific literature uh, lots of times. But when you, one great thing about scientific papers is when a, a scientific paper makes a statement, it tells you what that statement is based on. They, they cite other research right, right. that supports what they're saying. And so when you trace back all those citations they all go back to one study conducted in England. I mean, sometimes you had to follow three, paper one to paper two right. to paper three, but eventually it was all based on one study uh, in England. It was, a, it was actually a very nice study. Uh, it was a study on a number of cat outdoor unowned cat colonies in various places in, in England. And the researcher went and uh, and carefully watched the cats. Uh, you could do that because they were accustomed to people and recorded everything they did. And her conclusion was that the cats rarely meowed to each other. And you know, it, it was a good study. I, did, I, shouldn't, uh, I didn't mean to, to sound critical of that study, but it's just one study. And, you know, can you generalize from that? Is that true of all cats? Or is it just something about cat colonies in England? And so that's, that's why more research uh, is needed, and, uh, and surprisingly, there hasn't been more research on this question. Uh, it would be easy enough to do, and people have done studies on similar uh, other aspects of outdoor cat colonies, but just how the cats are interacting, this is the only one. Um, and if I can uh, digress for one moment, it's, it's also surprising how little scientists have studied how pet cats interact with each other in, in homes. Yep. I mean, that would be easy enough to do, but there's really surprisingly little research on that. And your co-host, uh, Dr. Delgado, on, on, her, um, on her blog, uh, what, uh, what, what Cats Want, um, no, that's not the name of it. I, I knew I'd botched the name of her. Oh, it doesn't uh, matter. Feline Minds it, is yeah, the name of her website. Yeah, in any case, she, she's written about this and how there's very little research and we need more of it and so yes. on. But, uh, so in any case, we, we don't have a lot of data on this. And um, I, I, my, I, my cats don't meow to each other. I have to say that does resonate with me. But I did actually get on a Facebook page for Siamese cats. Siamese cats are known to be the most yes. talkative of cats. And I just asked the members of this Facebook page, uh, do your cats meow to each other? And two-thirds of the respondents said they did. And so, you know, cats, they're, cats are highly variable, as we all know, one cat different from the other. I, my take on this is we certainly need more research. Um, probably cats don't meow to each other all that much, but some do more so than others. I didn't take uh, but, what uh, you wrote as a criticism of that that one study, it was more a, a scientist with a, a very open mind saying, 
Well, you've all based it on this one woman looking at a colony of cats in a country where cats, if you adopt a cat in England, you have to promise to let it be outdoors, which is the direct opposite of the U.S., where you have to promise to not let it go outdoors. Mm. Different right. ideas about wellness for cats. And so did was she like Jane Goodall? I mean, I don't think she went and studied the way Jane Goodall lived with the chimps for X number of years, quietly observing and taking notes. Did she do it for an hour, seven hours, for eight days? I mean, in the end, it was kind of citizen science. And yet, because she was a scientist, it was taken as some sort of gospel. I think that's what I love about the cat's meow, is you look at scientists doing what they do, academics doing what they do, and cats doing what they do, and what they used to do in ancient times, to the extent that you can find that out, and what their giant cousins do that live in either zoos or in the wild. I, I think you tie everything together so wonderfully by saying we don't know enough. We should know more. It's fun to know more. Let's think about it more. You know, I think it's an inspiration that everyone not just accept the well, my cat's quiet or my cat is um, bored and accept that. Maybe there's a lot more going on than we know about, right? I mean, Absolutely. I think that's really the beauty of the book is that you do love cats and you appreciate them, and you know you say that cat scientists are sort of you envy dog scientists because they it's easier for a dog scientist to judge the dog coming and going from a lab, if you will, you know, coming and going from its owner, and how does it feel about that? And it's, in the end, it's all subjective. Also, I just think it's such a wonderful book because it gets us inside the mind of a professor who refuses to acknowledge his PhD and his great accomplishments <laughs> because you want us to come along with you, I think, and not feel intimidated or or that we're, we are more ignorant than you, but that ignorance is good because it, it encourages you to think more. And to me, that's the beauty of your book, The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. Jonathan Losos, I, I wish we had more time, and I, I suspect you might have to come back for another conversation because there's just so much juicy, delicious, interesting stuff, as you say, great stuff in your book, not just in the footnotes, but in the text itself. Thank you for writing this wonderful book and for being here today. Well, thank you, Tracy. This has been a lot of fun, and I, of course, would be delighted to come back. Thanks for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. This show is supported by Wonderside, a company founded and run by a woman entrepreneur who wanted to find an effective natural way to keep fleas, ticks, and other pests away from her pets and home instead of putting toxic chemicals in or on them. Wonderside makes plant-powered products to keep parasites at bay without dousing your pets and property with ingredients that are harmful to them and the planet. The show is also underwritten by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human-edible, ethically-sourced ingredients and gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They've founded and run their own company and have been doing that for 14 years and answer only to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. I'm also grateful to Earth Animal, also privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. 
Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative dog chew, No Hide, and the hybrid dog food, Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky blue Weimarano Maisie will eat.